The first case of the deadly coronavirus making its way to the U.S. Pandemic has hit a new milestone in the United States, claiming more than 10,000 lives. The nation now surpassing 350,000 COVID deaths. Top health officials. If you even tried to describe the last year to someone, how would you do it? What would you say? It was a challenging year, an historic year, a year of isolation, of struggle, of loss. The nation tonight has marked a new watershed moment in the COVID-19 pandemic, 500,000 confirmed deaths. Over the next four episodes, we'll look back at what we are describing as the longest year. And we'll try to get our arms around the staggering toll the coronavirus pandemic has taken on America. I didn't want to believe 500,000. I couldn't imagine that this was going to happen. In this episode, you'll meet five people who spent the year fighting COVID-19 on the scientific and medical front lines. A New York City nurse who cared for patients during one of the nation's deadliest surges. Every day I left home, I looked in the mirror and I would say, I don't know if I'm making it back home today. A local official in Texas who fought to keep her public health department ahead of the virus spread. This was an emerging infectious disease, and we did not know a lot. And it turned out what little we thought we did know, um, some of it was wrong. Two scientists in the U.S. and in Canada who worked around the clock for free, fighting waves of misinformation online. We were getting hundreds and hundreds of posts and thousands and thousands of comments a day. So at some point, you're going to miss people spreading misinformation. And a journalist who ended up creating something his own government couldn't, one of the most trusted COVID data sources in the country. Tens and tens of thousands of people had died and the virus had been seeded in every single part of America by the time we had testing numbers from the federal government. It was, it, it was, it was bonkers. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted, the longest year. I'm Amna Nawaz. The Chinese government is still struggling to contain a coronavirus outbreak that has killed at least 26 people and infected over 900 more. It was late January 2020, and journalist Alexis Madrigal was at home in Oakland, California. He'd just finished doing some yoga, he popped open his laptop, and he stumbled across a story that pretty soon consumed him. I heard about the lockdown in China and started to get obsessed with the story. Like, I would just stay up, like, hours uh, after my wife had gone to bed on Twitter trying to just find, like, any information about what was going on there. Alexis is a staff writer at The Atlantic, so he started chasing the facts, and he quickly found out they were hard to find. In those early days, he noticed a problem. The U.S. wasn't doing enough COVID testing, and the government didn't have good data on the tests that were being done. So no one really knew how many Americans were actually infected. Once we realized how few tests had been done, that's when we knew, like, oh man, we're, we're going blind into this catastrophe. And by March 6th, they tested less than 2,000 people. So at that point, there were probably hundreds of thousands of people who were infected, but we'd only tested less than 2,000 of them, which was sort of the initial kind of original sin of the response. It meant that the virus could get everywhere and we had no hope of really um, containing it at our borders or in certain, you know, uh, localized outbreaks. 
It's that whole idea of you can't fix what you don't measure, right? And we weren't measuring. Exactly. And even when we did measure, we just didn't have the systems to put the measurements in, you know? I mean, data for decision-making was assumed that it would just be there. So if you read pandemic preparedness plans, they just think like, okay, well, when there's this many cases, we'll do this. But like, what if you don't know how many cases you have? <laughs> Not just because you aren't testing, but because of backlogs and data problems which means that when you're trying to make decisions about what's going on and you don't even know how many people are dying until a month after they've died, that's pretty bad. Alexis and a colleague at The Atlantic decided they needed to do something. So they worked with two friends, another journalist and a data scientist. They built a simple spreadsheet and put out a call for volunteers, people who could help with the Herculean task of tracking, testing, and patient outcomes from all 50 states, five territories, and the District of Columbia. It became known as the COVID Tracking Project. I mean, that has to be, as on a personal level, that has to be kind of terrifying to realize that you are now attempting to do something your own government is not doing at the moment. It was crushing. I mean, honestly, I, really honestly, like those weeks in, in March and, and into April, they were, they would rank as the worst weeks of my life, definitely. I mean, just really? realizing, well, because we just felt such enormous weight and responsibility that here we were like the bad news bears, you know, this like team of people who'd been drawn from everywhere who just had this project happen to them. I mean, I remember having to tell loved one after loved one and friends like, no, listen, I know that nobody is telling you that you can't do this yet, but you're not getting married next month. People were not ready for it. They weren't ready to hear it. And um, I spent a lot of that time feeling so frustrated and helpless to get the message across, which I think is one reason why we threw ourselves so thoroughly into COVID tracking project, because we felt like unless people realized how little testing we were doing, they wouldn't get why the cases were so low, which was the thing that made everybody not take it seriously in the early days. Like, why are we taking it seriously? There's only hundred cases. We had to be able to like, just shake people out of that early sleepwalking to be like, no, the numbers are bad. There's so many, so many more sick people. And actually we really undershot how many sick people there were. We, even though we were at the worst end of the spectrum of thinking like how bad things were, it was actually worse than that at the time. Alexis said one of the toughest parts about not having that data, especially on testing, was that it made it impossible to predict exactly where the virus was going to explode first. New York has become ground zero for coronavirus. Biomedical battlefield. Crisis in New York reaching a critical mass. Turns out it was New York City. The number of coronavirus deaths here in New York City alone has topped 4,000. I don't think any individual location experienced what New York did. Um, like that was, we've never seen hospitalization per capita numbers that high. For frontline workers at the city's hospitals, it was like an ambush. What I saw were just people scurrying around in personal protective equipment. Looked like we were from another planet and through the face shields, you could just see the fear in people's eyes. You could see the sadness, but you could also see courage. But I know that, I knew that they were just mentally and physically exhausting. That's Sandra Lindsay. She's a critical care nurse at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. When cases started climbing, hospital staff had to adapt and fast. 
they normally see about 50 ICU patients on any given day. And with the jump in COVID-19 cases, that grew to more than 150. They usually have about 20 people on ventilators. That ballooned to more than 120. And when one of those patients died, Sandra and her team had to immediately flip that bed for a new patient that needed it. There was no time to waste, no time to process. How do you even begin to describe that moment? What is that like in the moment? There are no words to describe it, um, except that at that point, you're, you're starting to to have some moral distress in addition to the physical and the mental distress. You're morally distressed because you figured that I should have been able to save someone's life and I couldn't. And they passed away and I can't even spend time to honor their spirit the way I would have loved to because somebody else is waiting for the bed and we're trying to see if we can save that person's life. So it was just, it was just so fast, sometimes you didn't have time to think. Growing up in Jamaica, Sandra dreamed of being a nurse. When she was just six years old, she says she helped to care for her grandmother who had diabetes. Sandra began studying to become a nurse when she came to the United States in the 1980s. But nothing could have prepared her for this. Every day I left home, I looked in the mirror and I would say, I don't know if I'm making it back home today, but I'm going out. Sometimes I would snap a picture and send to my friends and family, like, going to fight the invisible enemy. There was one particular day where it was towards the end of the day after doing a 12-hour shift. And because of the volume, we had to open up yet another intensive care unit. And after climbing the stairs to the sixth floor, my legs just could not go anymore. And I leaned against a railing on the wall. One of my nurse managers was with me at the time. And my body just felt hot and flushed. And I couldn't move. My, my feet just could not go anymore. And he said, Sandra, you need to go home. And I came home, did not remember the drive. I know that I was in my house and I was afraid to close my eyes that night. Why were you afraid to close your eyes? Because I, I felt like I had COVID and I did not want to die alone in my house. That's what I kept saying, because I live alone. I said, please, God, don't let me die alone here. Sandra woke up the next morning. She didn't have COVID, but she faced new challenges outside of work, including one day when a cable guy came to her house. He did not know I was a healthcare worker and he had his mask on and it was falling down. So I asked him if he could fix his mask. And he mentioned that, you know, this mask thing and, you know, COVID is a hoax and da da da, da and went off on, you know, inaccurate information and that he doesn't believe it. And I really got so upset. I had to stop him right there and after educating him and letting him know what I encounter every single day at work, he, he was so apologetic. It, it felt like a, a, 
a slap in my face for everything that me and all my colleagues were going through for you to say that this is not real and you don't believe it. It was just, I, I couldn't take it. I had to respond. I'm willing to bet almost all of you have had a similar experience over the last year. A family member who posted something untrue about the pandemic on Facebook. A friend who didn't think that masks could help. A neighbor who believed the former president when he downplayed the threat or peddled unproven treatments. I asked Alexis Madrigal of the COVID Tracking Project about the impact of all that bad information floating around the country. Through time, there has been a kind of devaluing of expertise um, in the United States, largely driven by, you know, anti-science and anti-kind of scientific process because people don't want to believe things like climate change and stuff like that. So there's a whole kind of ecosystem that's kind of set up to promote um, certain kinds of, of misinformation. You're saying that existed long before the pandemic, right? It existed long before the pandemic. And it allowed for a lot of different types of people to step into that space of interpreting the data. Some people were like us, COVID tracking project. We were one of these people who were like, well, we need to provide this information. But there are other variants of, uh, of folks who, who also stepped in, you know, people who, for whatever reason, were extremely opposed to the public health measures that were being taken and took a lot of data out of context and made a lot of really bad arguments about the idea that the coronavirus was not as serious and as deadly as it is. And that made a huge difference. There's been some recent debate over the true number of deaths caused by COVID-19. As the coronavirus spreads around the world, so too has misinformation about the disease. Public health officials around the world are now calling an infodemic. Is the Wuhan coronavirus a biological weapon? Was it built in a lab by scientists and unleashed on the masses? There's an old saying, you know, there's orders of magnitude more effort to dispel misinformation than it is to produce it. That's Grant Norman, a moderator for the website Reddit. So Reddit is essentially just like a, a large internet forum um, where you can discuss essentially any topic and what... Grant is a scientist and he lives in Canada. I do have a degree in microbiology. I also have a degree in neuroscience. So neuroscience and for the last year, he has helped to patrol one of the main Reddit pages dedicated to coronavirus information. That means a huge part of his job has been weeding out bad actors and misinformation in his particular Reddit forum, which is no small task. It's got about two and a half million active users. He does this work for free alongside a guy named Pat Doherty. He's another scientist who lives in Chicago. In grad school, I studied infectious diseases. I studied tuberculosis and HIV co-infections, and I have a background in aerosolized um, exposures of viruses. If you're wondering how you even begin to combat misinformation on a site with millions of users, here is how Pat and Grant describe what they do. We go through comments and go through threads and we look for comments that break our rules. Things like incivility or off-topic politics or things that don't pertain necessarily to the pandemic or being rude to other posters, things like that. And so if somebody comes in and they say something that sounds like science, but it's fear-based and it's not true, people will take that at face value because it's, it's scary. And so it just starts the snowball of fear. And unless we come in and we nip it where we either remove it or remove it with a comment that says like, 
this is untrue because of X, Y, and Z, um, people will just kind of roll with that. So especially when things were picking up in March and April and we were getting hundreds and hundreds of posts and thousands and thousands of comments a day. I mean, you'd read a comment that would say something and it might've taken them 30 seconds to write it, but the information that's in there, it's gonna take me 15 minutes to verify. So at some point you're gonna miss people spreading this information. Grant and Pat saw claims like COVID couldn't be passed from human to human, that the virus had strains of HIV in it, that military lockdowns were coming. But some of their toughest days Good afternoon. were when then-President Donald Trump would hold news conferences about the pandemic and spread false information. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that? Uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning. And so as a scientist, I mean, you can see there's videos of Fauci sitting there and being like, the look on his face is like, are you kidding me? Why are you saying these things, right? So we sort of had the same sort of reaction where we're like, I can't believe, like for instance, with hydroxychloroquine, where he was just touting that as like the silver bullet, the miracle drug that was going to cure everything. And it obviously it's turned out that that's not true and everything like that. How can you tell the difference? between someone who's legitimately asking a question and someone who's actively trying to see disinformation? You can't. I mean, you really can't. But I like to think that people aren't intending to be spreading misinformation. There are bad actors, for sure. Whether they're just trolls or seeding from a foreign government trying to sow dissent, which has happened on Reddit before. Um, you know, I like to think that most people are just confused. and. I think that's where most misinformation comes from, is genuine curiosity and misunderstanding of how science works. Whether intentional or not, Alexis Madrigal from the COVID Tracking Project says that wrong information has had real consequences. One of the things we know that changes people's behavior the most during the pandemic has been death, like reporting on death. That, you know, when deaths rise, people change their behavior. In fact, a study done last year by the National Bureau of Economic Research found that parts of the country exposed to television programming downplaying the severity of the pandemic also saw higher numbers of infections and deaths. And the people in particular who targeted death numbers, saying that they were overblown and blah, 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 they had a, a direct and negative impact on, uh, on people's lives. Dr. Bridger, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. I hope you are. Dr. Colleen Bridger is the public health director for San Antonio, Texas. It's her job to make sure the city's 1.5 million residents stay safe in the pandemic. Part of that has meant issuing guidelines for when restaurants should close or how many people can safely gather at a time. We take a live picture from San Antonio, Texas, on February 7th of 2020, San Antonio's Lackland Air Force Base received dozens of evacuees from Wuhan. You just saw a plane land in San Antonio. This plane is carrying Americans evacuated from Wuhan, China. Which is Lackland was one of five military bases the U.S. government picked to quarantine travelers with potential COVID exposure. But the system was far from perfect. In one case, a woman initially tested negative for the virus and was released from isolation. She got in a taxi, she visited a San Antonio mall, she went to a local hotel, and then another COVID test came back positive. And what do you think at that moment? Holy, holy hell, what are we going to do? Because 
everybody was already very scared about the fact that these federal evacuees were in our city and they were going to infect us all. As the pandemic wore on, Colleen struggled week to week to get accurate and up-to-date information to the city. We had the Surgeon General tweeting, for the love of God, please don't wear a mask. Um, And so we were following the federal lead, and we were also recommending not wearing masks. Um, And so that turned out to be a huge mistake, and that undermined the community's trust and our ability to give them the correct information. As things get worse on the ground, does the information flow, the support, the help from the federal government, does that get better? It really didn't. Um, And, you know, one of the frustrating things for me is I've been a local health official for 25 years. The CDC is our mothership. It is ingrained in us that we follow their guidance, that we follow their lead. And so it was so hard to break that, but the CDC says mentality but the recommendations were all over the place and they'd be up one day and then they'd be pulled down the next. Something we need to point out here is that Colleen wasn't even supposed to be San Antonio's public health director through all this. She did have that title until 2019, just months before the pandemic, when she was promoted to assistant city manager. But her successor stepped down in June of 2020, just as Texas was facing its first major spike in COVID cases. That's not all that unusual. Across the country, at least 181 state and local public health officials have resigned, retired, or been fired since the pandemic started. That's according to an investigation by the Associated Press and Kaiser Health News. In San Antonio, that meant Colleen had to do both her old job and her new one. So every day, it was her responsibility to relay the city's worsening numbers. I remember feeling like when I was a kid in school and I knew I had bombed a test, that kind of sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach every day at three o'clock, because I knew those numbers were going to be worse every single day. And so having that kind of that anxiety and that dread um, every day. But you can't feel sorry for yourself because that's another thousand, two thousand, twenty five hundred people a day who've been diagnosed with COVID. And you can't help but wonder, is there something else we could have done? How do you get through that day to day? It was hard not to take it as a personal failing. And it was hard to be the the person who had to help the rest of the public health team not take it as a personal failing, right? And so um, because there were a lot of people criticizing us, if you were doing your jobs right, this wouldn't be happening. Um, but it has taken a toll. New this morning, a protest against the city's coronavirus curfew. In Texas, there is a strong anti-government sentiment anyway. And in the beginning, when we started understanding what actually worked, 
um, our mayor and our judge um, took public health recommendation to mandate that people wear masks, for example. And so when they passed that mandate, then there was a, um, well, first you say you don't, we, we don't need to wear masks. Now you say we have to wear masks or you're going to give us a ticket. Um, make up your mind. You don't know what you're doing. And so there was a lot of, you know, don't listen to these public health people. They don't know what they're doing. They're just making stuff up. At one point, Texas Governor Greg Abbott even said that cities couldn't enforce their own mask mandates. We make clear uh, that no jurisdiction can impose any type of penalty or fine for anyone not wearing a mask. As a health official, what was your first reaction when the governor took that step? You know, that was the the single most frustrating thing about this pandemic has been the level to which it has been politicized. This is unlike anything we have ever seen before. And so having to really justify the the science behind public health recommendations um, over and over and over to really smart elected officials because they were hearing from the community that, oh, I can't wear a mask, I can't breathe when I have a mask on, um, which we all know is not true, is that was so frustrating for us to have to do that. But, but really, it was just another example of politicians kind of co-opting the public health response to this pandemic. But in December, there was a glimmer of hope. Do you remember the day that the first vaccine arrived in your city? I do. I do. Um, what was that like? It, it was a moment of relief. And that was the case for the rest of the country, too. The historic milestone in this pandemic, the first vaccinations are now underway across the U.S. The most ambitious... On December 14th, the United States administered its first COVID-19 vaccine. The recipient was Sandra Lindsay the ICU nurse in New York that we heard from earlier. Sandra Lindsay. Sandra Lindsay. Sandra Lindsay. Sandra Lindsay. You saw her getting the shot there, yeah. And you were feeling well? I'm Governor Cuomo. I'm feeling well. I... Sandra got the shot at her hospital in front of a bunch of TV cameras broadcasting the moment to the entire world. What did you think when you walked into that room? I was just so excited to get the vaccine. I'm like, when is it coming? And, you know, I saw my chair there and I some photographers. So I figure we're a big health system. That's a news we want to get out to our health system, right? I did not expect to be on CNN in the night. You know, Sandra, thanks so much for, for joining us. I know it's been a long day for you, although I'm sure you're used to a lot of long days in your life-saving work and doing multiple podcasts and interviews. I did not expect any of it. I was not prepared to do any interviews after getting the vaccine. As a matter of fact, after getting it and, you know, exchanging a few pleasantries and thanking um, my CEO for the opportunity, I was saying goodbye. And one of my senior leaders said, well, where are you going? And I said, I'm going back to work. And he said, no, you're not. We have a press conference at 11 and another one at whatever time. And I said, really? He said, you had no idea what to expect, right? And I said, no, I thought I was just coming in to get my vaccine. 
Sandra says she wanted to show people the vaccine was safe. Her decision even helped to convince a friend who was on the fence about getting the shot. How did that make you feel? It made me feel like I, you know, my, my message is resonating with people. And that is what I wanted to inspire public confidence. But just as Sandra Lindsay experienced that elation of getting a vaccine in New York, back in San Antonio, Colleen Bridger was trying to figure out how to roll out a vaccination campaign for a major American city. It was a wonderful, collaborative, hopeful moment um, for about a week. And today? Oh, today it's, it's the same daily agony and angst. People are afraid knowing that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people out there who are scared that they're going to get COVID and die. And if only they could get a vaccine, things would be better. Um, day after day after day is, is really weighing on all of us. Colleen knew it was going to be a challenge even before doses arrived, and she urged the mayor not to get involved. I said, it is going to be a disaster. There is not going to be enough vaccine for everybody who wants it. And when you can't do it, you're going to be blamed. I said, you need to stay away from it and let public health make the decisions and let public health take the blame. And that is exactly what happened. People are mad because they can't get the shot. And um, there's a, you know, hashtag fire Colleen Bridger out there on Twitter right now because they don't understand why they can't get the shot. They don't understand why um, it's so hard to find and so hard to sign up for. And surely um, somebody smarter than me could figure out a better process to make 25,000 shots work for 2 million people. Do you think that's fair? No, I don't think that's fair. Do I think that's human? Yes. Um, it, it still doesn't. It it still doesn't feel good when you see fire yourself on Twitter, um, and then you know people piling on and saying, "Yeah, I could do that job." Distributing the vaccine has been half the battle. Across the nation, getting people to trust it has presented new hurdles. And for Pat and Grant from Reddit, that meant more work. The level of misinformation stayed fairly static for the most part until the vaccine came out. Then it went like through the roof, in my opinion. But as the time goes on, it's whatever the hot button issue is at that time of misinformation. That's what's going to be what we see the most. And as right now, it's about the vaccine. And like Colleen Bridger, they're fighting a constant stream of criticism. You just deal with mean people all day. We get death threats all the time. Um, you get death threats from moderating the conversation? All the time. <laughs> I mean, it's it's actually sort of like a microcosm of what's happening in the U.S. to epidemiologists and high-level public health officials. I mean, you can see there's a lot of states that the public health officials are stepping down or they have to have guards guarding their home because people are protesting outside. And they're like, I'm just trying to help you. Like, we're, we're just trying to give you the best information we know at this time and, and you guys are telling us that we should die because it's not the right information that you want to hear. I mean, a lot of things have happened over the past year where it's like, wow, this is kind of a lot more than I expected in January. So, I mean, we're talking about it like it's over. It's definitely not. We're still very much in this pandemic. So are, are you going to stick with this? 
the pandemic is definitely not over. But in terms of activity, like day-to-day activity, it has dialed down a little bit for us. And, and we look forward to when the pandemic's over. I can't wait until the pandemic's over. And, you know, I think that we'll all be super excited to not have to moderate this ever again. But I would do it again. Grant, you do it again too? I don't know. It takes a lot out of you. I'm tired. It's exhausting. So I've, like Pat said, I'd like for this pandemic to eventually wrap up so that we can just move on with our lives. And for Alexis Madrigal, the man who helped create the COVID tracking project, he still can't believe it's gotten this bad. I think the thing that I, that I anticipated the least, actually, was just how we would normalize all the death, how we would normalize like all the kids like stuck at home and essential workers just like going into these workplaces over and over like just that it could get so bad and seem so normal that that sense of like everything falling apart at every level all around you and yet you have to live you have to survive you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and telling your kids to eat their broccoli and you know just all of those things the the, the, the normalcy of the weirdness was the thing that without living through it, I don't think I could have ever understood. On March 7th, exactly one year after its launch, the COVID tracking project will stop compiling data. Alexis says it's partly because the government is doing a better job of it now. But reflecting back on an exhausting year, he's not only thinking about the data. You think about all the frontline workers, care workers in long-term care facilities, all these people who are doing direct uh, care and service. You think about all these people who who died alone because they couldn't see their families, you know, and you just think like, what am I whining about? You know what I mean? I'm sitting here in my house, like, sure, I'm like closing my laptop at one in the morning again, but you know what I'm not doing? I'm not doing that brutal emotional and physical labor um, that all those people were. People like Sandra Lindsay, who is still working as an ICU nurse in New York. Did it ever feel like too much? Did you ever think about leaving? I never thought about leaving. No? No. I love what I do. I'm very proud to be a nurse. And, you know, as hard as it, it was and, you know, it's still happening, I've never been prouder than now to be a nurse. Please consider this letter as formal notification that I'm leaving the city of San Antonio effective January 8th, 2021. In October, San Antonio Public Health Director Colleen Bridger submitted this resignation letter. She wanted to retire and spend more time with her new granddaughter. Running point on the city's response to this 100-year pandemic has been the single most difficult thing I have done professionally. And I will forever be grateful for your blocking and tackling as well as your enduring confidence in my ability to handle everything that came our way. I thought I was going to get through this, y'all. Why do you think it's so hard for you to read those words now? I think to get through this pandemic, we have all put on our armor and we have all focused on doing the necessary to get things done. And so, and we just keep looking forward. You can't, you can't look back. Um, But that caused me to look back a little. 
shortly after Colleen wrote that letter, her replacement fell through. So one year into this pandemic, you're still on the job. I am. I am. Now she says she doesn't want to leave until the pandemic is over. I would think to myself, but what if we're almost, that that little internal optimist, what if we're almost done? What if we're almost there? You'd feel terrible if you left and then a month later everything was better and you didn't see it through to the end. Um, So there's something in me about seeing it through to the end. One year into this pandemic, no one's really sure where the end is or what it looks like when we get there. The experts tell us over and over the virus isn't done with us yet. But there's no question about what it's already done to us over the last year. It's changed how we work, how we learn, how we grieve, how we live. For some of us, the day-to-day has been almost unbearable. Some days were so difficult that I would get in the bed at night and I would be near tears, like, we got to do this all over again tomorrow. On the next episode of America Interrupted, The Longest Year, stories of how everyday life has changed during the pandemic. This episode was produced by Mike Fritz, Sam Lane, and Vika Aronson, and edited by Emily Carpo and Erica R. Hendry. Fact-checking by Lorna Baldwin and Liz Balaji. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, and Maura Shannon. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all our coverage on air and on our website. That's pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening.